Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So hello, Carly. How are you today? I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me and yeah, this is such an exciting time sitting in my laundry room virtually <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> it's so weird to record sometimes because I always feel like I leave these podcasts knowing someone and that I got to actually sit down in person with them. And then I think I'm like, we're both sitting in the most random spaces in our houses and <laughs> just recording a podcast virtually. It's unreal. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's. I mean, yeah. Thank you, technology. <laughs> yeah, really, for sure. So do you want to tell us a little bit, a brief outline of who you are and what you do, just so we can get to know you a little bit? Yeah, so um, my name is Carly uh, Rice-Judeau, and I am a fourth-year animal behavior PhD student at UC Davis. So I like to consider myself um, a conservation behaviorist that focuses on improving animal welfare and behavioral development of seals in wildlife rehabilitation centers. And this is all in order to improve their conservation success after they're released into the wild. Um, And I'm also an an enthusiastic science communicator um, and I want to help others feel empowered to pursue their curiosity for the natural world and explore different avenues of science. Because I feel like, especially for me growing up, it was something that was a very specific thought in my head of what a scientist was so trying to yeah. yeah make that make that more available to other people that it is more than a lab coat and like <laughs> test tubes <laughs> yeah absolutely it's such a broad broad thing that you can do anything and still be considered a scientist I've talked about this uh, I think the last time I talked about this in previous podcasts was with Rose and we said like the second you asked a question you're a scientist and it's Mm -hmm. as easy as that the second you want to know how or why something works you're a scientist I love that and it's it's totally true and I don't I don't think that scientists and the the public even realize that yeah it's become so formalized so (laughs) yeah which is nice it's nice that it's kind of becoming more accessible now especially with uh, all these different communication routes between like podcasts, YouTube, like social media in general. So it's so nice. That oh, for sure. It's yeah, so I, easy. I will say like I have become mildly obsessed with like science Twitter. Um, it's been really <laughs> my like grounding during COVID of just like, where are my marine nerds? Tell me something cool today. I want to see a cool nudibranch picture. So yeah, I love it. <laughs> It's nice to be able to connect. Well, you and I connected via Twitter and we definitely would have not uh, heard of or known each other without the Twitter verse. So that's super cool. Yeah. So did you always know growing up that you wanted to be a scientist or do science of some sort? Or is this something you found as you like got older? Like, were you a little girl that was like, nope, this is what I want to do? Yeah. Okay. So the origin story. Um, Honestly, I think I've always felt that I was a naturalist, um, but like being a scientist was not really on my radar in the way that I think of science like back then. So, I mean, during my childhood, my entire world revolved around the water and animals. And so um, 
you know, as a kid, I loved observing and learning about animals, whether it was in my backyard or the zoo, or my favorite was snorkeling with my family. You know, my mom was like, yep, you're a water baby. Like, learn how to body surf at two. We're going to teach you how to snorkel at age four. Um, and so I remember a time when I was like six or seven um, and my mom and I were pouring over her naturalist books, uh, looking up like all the fish that we saw that day. And somehow the conclusion of that conversation was that I wanted to be a marine biologist. So in that way, I am one of those kids. But then once I got to college and realized that being a marine biologist included classes like physics and organic chemistry, I was like, I don't think that's for me. Tell um, me about it. <laughs> So yeah, and like, I don't know, just growing up, teachers never really promoted me having this scientific identity. And so I always was one of those students that was like, I'm not smart enough to be a scientist. Um, and so instead, I took this route into psychology, because I realized that, oh, what I really like is like the behavior of animals, not just, you know, the kind of ecosystem interactions that sometimes come with being a marine biologist. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of, I was a marine biologist and then I turned kind of animal behaviorist, animal trainer. So I worked in, in a zoo for a while. Um, and my turning point was, um, while I was living in Monterey after, uh, undergrad, um, I found the Pinniped Cognition and Sensory Systems Lab in Santa Cruz. And so the mentorship there um, and that sense of community and love for science really built up my confidence um, that like, oh, I have these interesting scientific questions that no one is asking. Um, and so, yeah, I, I am now here in grad school and yeah. I love that uh, you kind of not, you didn't take a... Um... Everyone kind of takes a non-linear path, but I really like that yours was kind of not as direct of just science and just straight up, like, okay, straight ahead. And that you kind of took in the feelings of, okay, I don't feel like I can do this, do it this way, but I'll do it a different way. Because I think that is so awesome. Yeah, for sure. It was. It's kind of, my family loves to kind of poke fun at me about it because, you know, towards the end of my undergrad you know I was like no grad school isn't for me I'm gonna be this thing and then four years later after adamantly telling my family that it turns out it was and then I did a master's program I'm like no PhD is not for me like I just want a master's to answer this one question and yeah now I've I've caught the science bug and I have to answer all the questions. <laughs> There's so many questions. Why would you leave them unanswered? Exactly. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing for your PhD right now, like a little more in depth or what you plan to do? Because obviously your plans have been a little altered with everything going on in the world. So kind of what you were expecting to do and now maybe what you might be forced to do instead. Yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah. The I know that I was told like for the past three years, like, oh yeah, whatever you propose in your PhD, like no one actually does that. I'm like, no, I am an avid planner. I know that I'm gonna be doing these things. And yeah, of course, like, no, I'm not gonna be doing that. So, <laughs> um, so what I want, what I came into my PhD uh, wanting to do is kind of putting myself at this 
weird intersection of animal welfare, behavioral ecology, and conservation. And this is because um, I really like to explore different behavioral management strategies that we can use to better prepare animals that are in our, like wild animals that are temporarily in our care um, to be reintroduced back into the wild. Um, so I'm, you know, in, in a wildlife rehabilitation setting, um, which is just animals that are ill or injured are brought to um, a, a wildlife hospital, essentially, they're given treatment, they are usually fattened up if they are malnourished, um, and then they're released back into the wild. Um, and I, taking my knowledge from, um, from my captive husbandry days and my zookeeper animal trainer days and applying it to this conservation setting is really exciting. And so what I'm doing is using these um, management strategies such as enrichment uh, to improve the animal's um, physical and psychological health, um, but also, you know, their cognition. So promoting learning and problem solving and behavioral development that allows them to be more successful once they're in the wild. Cool. So are you focusing on any specific animal or just kind of any animal animals that come into your care? That's a great question. So my, um, <laughs> my master's started with uh, just harbor seals um, up at the Marine Mammal Center in uh, Sausalito, California. And so these animals come in um, as neonates. So sometimes their umbilical cord is still attached. They have no teeth, so they should be suckling uh, with mom at this point, but things happen and they're in our care. And so they, since they are growing up and have this critical development period while they're in this very foreign environment with very foreign human beings, um, I thought that it was important to provide these behavioral outlets for them through enrichment. Um, and now I have expanded beyond that to elephant seals um, that come in at a slightly different um, developmental stage. They usually are, um, well, early in the season, they come in as black coats and that is kind of the equivalent of a harbor seal neonate, like yeah, they should still be with mom at that point, but most yeah. of the animals come in um, at a at weaning stage. So that mom has left and they're trying to figure out the world and they come into our care because they they still don't know how to be a seal. Um, so <laughs> we usually have to fatten them up and teach them how to eat fish and then we release them. Um, so I really want to try and use some of those behavioral management strategies with them. And then I also am working with um, Hawaiian monk seals out in Kona. Um, and so they're an, an endangered species and um, they are in captive care for um, you know, a longer period of time because with the, the Northwestern Hawaiian islands um, are only accessible by boat and like, you know, it has to be a NOAA research vessel. So they will tag and bring down um, any Hawaiian monk seals that are in need of some kind of veterinary treatment. And then they're there until the vessel is able to go back up to the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands. So I wanted to be sure that 
they're getting mentally stimulated and they are um, expressing um, behavioral patterns that will help them once they're in the wild. And so, yeah, I kind of have these three different species that are somewhat related, but also, um, also, yeah, very, very different at very different developmental stages. Okay. So when you were kind of talking about like teaching them how to be a seal, like how would you guys do that? And what like behavioral patterns are you looking for? Like, tell us a bit about these seals behaviors that you're kind of teaching them since they're such a young seal. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So, um, my particular focus is on foraging. So teaching these animals how to eat. Um, so in rehabilitation, you know, these animals come in, they usually get tube fed with, you know, electrolytes and sometimes like what we call a fish smoothie or a fish milkshake, which is essentially blended up fish. Um, and so, um, they start out on that diet just to get them stable, but then they are offered, um, you know, thawed dead fish. Um, and there's like a whole system we call fish school of teaching them how to, um, kind of develop these instincts to follow fish, um, allow them to work out, like, how do you position the fish in order to swallow it correctly? Um, And so there are these stages that kind of happen. And those have been in place um, way before I was there. Um, But it's just, that's one way to eat a fish is just this, you know, they are in the water and you have to go and catch them. And so um, I am using enrichment, which is, I'm sure if you don't know what it is, it's a husbandry tool that is used in captive settings. So if you have a cat or a dog and you have like a cat tree or like chew toys or, you know, anything in um, a zoo setting. So like different puzzles or um, like various food items, like that is all enrichment. It really, um, it's anything that expands the animal's choice and control of their environment. It promotes problem solving and helps them display these species typical behaviors. Um, And so I'm using those to kind of expand their foraging repertoire. Like fish don't just float in the water waiting for you to get them. You know, sometimes you need to, you know, dig underneath a rock or sometimes you need to um, like blow bubbles into a reef head in order to flush out the fish. So trying to um, stimulate them to yeah, problem solve their way to efficient foraging. That is so cute. <laughs> that is, it's pretty like, fun. It's, it's so cool and so cute. Like I'm just picturing teaching this little seal how to find fish. And that's just <laughs> unreal that you get to do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty fun. Um it's it can be very uh they always surprise me. Like I, I make all of these different enrichment um devices well make is maybe not the operative word because I'm not good with tools but I design (laughs) um enrichment items that then um someone with much better handy skills than myself um builds it but yeah I have this certain idea in my head of what they're gonna do with this 
uh, device and then they're just like, no, we're not going to use it that way. We're just going to like turn it upside down and push it on deck and then we're going to hang out inside it. And so it's, yeah, it's always, they always keep me guessing, but I love it because it's also promoting that problem solving novel, like uh, novel decision-making and um, it, those are all really great traits to have when you're in the wild. Absolutely. This must be an interesting thing in terms of looking at like the nature versus nurture debate, which I know it's going to be a little bit different, but like these seals, you can teach them so much, but they're going to have just those natural seal intelligence things that they know what they're supposed to be eating. And like, they must have some sort of like natural instinct as a wild animal. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's definitely, it's, a definite blend enrichment, I mean, not enrichment, uh, nature and nurture. Um, and so the, well, I don't know. That's like a, it's a, it's a, this is like, this is making me think. (laughs) And it's, I'm kind of like, whoa, this is so cool. Yeah. So there are these instincts that they do have, um, but I would say it also depends on their natural history because you have, um, you know, harbor seals are precocial, so they can start swimming with mom within two hours of birth. Um, they, you know, will um, nurse underneath the water. Um, there's some evidence that uh, harbor seal pups kind of go through this intermediate period where they're nursing but also maybe eating like invertebrates and stuff while their mom is down foraging as well um so there is some learning to that and then you have an elephant seal and hawaiian monk seals and so their moms are just we're hauled out on the beach you're going to get all of this milk for six weeks and then i am gone and you fend for yourself um, and there's that kind of like a learning curve there for those, um, those animals. So yeah, it, it is interesting to think about nature and nurture, but I think also it's like the environment that they're in. Um, yeah. yeah, like no matter what, whether you are a harbor seal that is underwater messing with, um, invertebrates or you're an elephant seal pup that is like pushing around algae you know, you're, they're interacting with this environment, this very complex environment. Um, whereas in a rehabilitation setting, you know, for hygiene and safety reasons, it's, it's a square pool, it is um, a flat surface. And so there's less opportunity to have those environmental interactions. So I guess maybe what I'm saying is that it's nature, nurture, and the environment. <laughs> <laughs> it is everything. There is no single thing that creates how these seals interact, which is super yeah. cool. <laughs> super interesting. So why do you think that this is something that is important to look at or that should be studied? Why Why does this matter? Because it obviously does. I want yeah. to hear your take on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I love the, you know, why should I care? Um, and for me, you know, there, we, humans, we've kind of messed up. Well, we've definitely messed up our <laughs> environment. And so there are many reasons that these seals come into rehabilitation. And 
I think, you know, humans were trying to be like, okay, we mess up your environment, but we'll at least try and take care of you when things happen. Um, Mm. So we're doing this good deed, but historically, wildlife rehabilitation really places an emphasis on an animal's physical health. And so it's just like, yeah, let's get you better. Let's get you chunky. Let's get you back out into the wild. But it's so much more than that. You know, we need to begin thinking about behavioral health um, in order to really prepare these animals for success, um, which, you know, that's, that's all we want is to be able to not just have a chunky seal going back out in the ocean, but to have that chunky seal have more chunky seals. Um, so yeah, a lot of the, the rehabilitation and like release literature talks about this kind of learning curve where, you know, we fatten up these animals, we release them. If they're monitored, they kind of, they lose weight and deteriorate body condition a little bit. And, you know, their, their behaviors are kind of erratic and they just, they don't seem to know what they're doing. And that's portrayed as a normal part of the reintroduction process, which is no doubt true, but I think we can make that gap smaller by giving them this behavioral toolbox while they are in rehabilitation that they can then apply to these situations once they're back out in the big blue ocean. Oh, absolutely. I love that. (laughs) I also, I love the question, why should I care about this? And I love when people have a set answer like that or like are ready to go with it. But I also love like, why do you need a reason to care? Like, why did you, why does this have to benefit you in some way to care? So I love that this is all about the seals is why you should care. I love that. Oh, yeah, that <laughs> that has always been a critique when I'm writing grants <laughs> is like, no, no, Carly, you're doing it wrong. You can't talk about that. You have to talk about the human part of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, we use all this money for rehabilitation so we can save money, blah, blah, blah. But really, I don't care about that. It is about the seals. (laughs) It should not, it's not about us at all. We already have messed up enough for these guys. It should be about us trying to fix our mistakes. Exactly. So excited to be partnering with Caitlin McCall, an eco-conscious diver, for the launch of the new course, A Complete Introduction to Marine Conservation. Trying to learn more about marine conservation and how to implement it into your own everyday lives can be very overwhelming. There's lots of rabbit holes and misinformation that can be found on Google, but this step-by-step guide from Caitlin is the best place to start and allows you to make marine conservation a part of your life every single day in the easiest way possible. Only six hours of at-your-own-paced online material stand between you and your future of marine conservation. Make sure you use the link in our bio to get the course at a discounted price for a limited time. We can't wait to hear what you do with this. Is there anything you're doing right now for your PhD that Yeah, so pre-COVID, like pre-California shutdown in March, I was two weeks away from starting um, data collection. So I was getting volunteers trained up and doing final touches on uh, different enrichment devices. And then COVID happened, shut down. Essentially, data collection season was canceled. So I was hoping to, a, a typical day for me was 
waking up really early and watching some seals and giving them some enrichment and recording their behaviors. Um, but instead, I spend a lot of time on my computer. <laughs> um, so one good thing, I guess, that like one silver lining um, of this whole situation is um, I have developed um, a collaboration with um, a researcher, David Hawking, uh, over in Melbourne, Australia. And so he looks at feeding mechanics of pinniped and we have pinnipeds, um, seals, sea lions, walruses. And um, he has all of this video footage looking at harbor seals in rehabilitation up in Alaska. And so he was like, hey, I have all of these videos. And since your like season is canceled, do you want to like look at the videos and see if you can do anything with that? Cool. Yeah, so it's been really fun. Um, I am cleaning up the data now, getting everything organized. I want to with these videos that are of these animals underwater during a feeding session really pinpoint behaviors that can identify these critical points of development using their behavior. So, you know, when they are underwater with a big fish, what kind of strategies do they employ? Do those strategies change over time as they get older and that, you know, they've had more experiences with that type of fish, you know, live fish versus dead fish? Are they um, employing different strategies there? So just trying to really nitpick at their um, foraging behaviors to get a better idea of how they're learning. In addition to kind of these enrichment, um, these tools that help promote problem solving, um, I'm also looking at, um, during my master's, I had noticed that these harbor seals became very responsive to human presence. Um, even though, you know, we, we try and avoid that habituation, um, the harbor seals really picked up on these um, cues that occurred before feeding time. And so, you know, feeding time, it occurred four times a day at the same time of day. And um, luckily, my current PhD advisor um, studies that uh, in zoo animals. So we call it anticipatory behavior. And so oh. anticipatory behavior is this really purpose-driven behavior um, that is seeking out a reward. And so they are usually seen around these structured events that have these positive rewards, such as feeding time. And so um, the animals will pick up on these cues such as, oh, it's so funny to see the elephant seals um, anticipatory behavior because it's like 6.30 in the morning, it's almost seven they start rolling this cart around um, with all of the different feeds on it. And like the cart is over at one end of the hospital and the elephant seals like three pins down are trying to peek up over the gate to see like, oh, is it my turn to feed? Um, and so I'm really wanting to tap into those cues um, and provide those cues in a way that are very accurate um, so, you know, if, if the cart, if the little feed cart is at one end and this little elephant seal that is malnourished and trying to get better is, you know, three pins over, like, wait, is it my time? Do I need to be ready? What's going on? Um, you know, that's, that's wasted energy for them. So figuring out a way to put these, um, put these positive events like feeding 
on a cue. And that way, you know, when it is feeding time, there's this one very salient cue, um, like it is feeding time for your pen, get ready for fish, right? And then that way, the rest of the time, they can just, you know, do their own thing. Um, and so it provides um, more control for the animal. Um, and if you think about it from like a, from like an evolutionary perspective, like our environment is also full of cues. And so um, you really rely on reliable um, environmental indicators to kind of lead you to express a certain behavior. So we just want to make sure that those um, cues that they pick up on in rehabilitation are helpful and not hindering. That's awesome. That's super interesting. It fits super well in with what you're doing with looking at the behavior and uh, getting them ready. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also, like, you know, if if um, if this if this event, if a feeding event is like the only um, kind of exciting part of their day, that can be an indication to us that oh, you need more stuff to do throughout the day so that you don't have to be so amped about this one positive event. And so we can then use enrichment and like providing them with things to do in between those feeding times. That way, you know, it's not just like, oh my God, it is finally four o'clock. I'm going to get fed. You know, it's like, oh yeah, like I'm, I'm hungry. I should, yeah, get ready when the cue comes. But for now I can just interact with this stuff that's already in my environment. Yeah, like I can keep busy. I'm not focusing only on this one thing. That's exactly. super interesting to look at. Yeah. <laughs> Which when you think about what they're doing in the wild, it would be what they're doing. Like, well, they do spend a lot of their day looking for food, but that's not all they're doing. Like after they found their food, they're obviously going to go out and kind of check things out or even just go lay and bask in rocks. Exactly. So, like that's yeah. what our seals do. So like it should, they like, yeah, they need things to keep them interested. That's super cool. <laughs> Not that you have a favorite kind of seal, but if you did have a favorite kind of seal, which one would be the favorite ones that you've worked with? Oh. <laughs> the well. hard question. <laughs> um, I do have the scientific name of Harbor Seal tattooed on my body. <laughs> I love that. So I am inclined to say Harbor Seal. Um Honestly, I really think they are just be well, no, it's, yeah, if I had to pick one, it would be harbor seals because I find their natural history incredibly fascinating. Like these pups are born ready to swim in the waves within hours. Like they go on these dive trips with their moms at like days old. They're then just they, they have such like a wide habitat range and they employ all these different foraging strategies. And so they're just, they're really fun to, <laughs> to learn about. Um, that elephant seals are really interesting because of their physiology. Like they're, the way their bodies work is freaking science magic. Like I just, <laughs> I always say like, you know, if, if you were to have um, one animal adaptation, what would it be? And I'm like, I want the hemoglobin of an elephant seal so I can go and dive for hours. Like, that is what I want. 
Um, but yeah, I would say as far as just overall seal favoritism, it would lean Harbor Seal. I have to agree. I am pretty inclined to say Harbor Seals. They are, I love them. We have them here and it's so funny that we're in two very, very different areas and mm-hmm. both have Harbor Seals. Uh, I worked at an aquarium here for a little while. We had two harbor seals there, Loki and Snorkel, who loves my life. Snorkel and I share birthdays, so we are connected forever. (gasps) (laughs) And then um, we see harbor seals every day on the boat, and they're just these fun little seals. Like They are so unbelievably cute. I absolutely have so much love for them. Yeah, and I just, I love too that, they are so skittish when they are on land, but in the water, they are incredibly curious and playful. And it's, it's just, I don't know. I've always identified with seals because they look and act really derpy on land, but in the <laughs> water, little it's just like, I'm in my comfort zone. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I always identify that like, yeah, the, the ocean is where I belong. I have to be on land sometimes. I don't really like it. <laughs> I love that. I love that outlook. That is so good. Yeah, it, it's always good to have that healthy respect. Like, um, my partner and I go uh, free diving whenever we can on the coast. And, um, yeah, there's this one spot where harbor seals will show up. And, like, you know, half of me is, like, squealing that I am in such a close vicinity with this like my favorite animal but also like please don't hurt me like I'll stay (laughs) I am I am not gonna move I'm just gonna be here and you can do whatever you want (laughs) this is your area I'm just here please please just ignore me yep (laughs) so growing up you kind of said that you were a naturalist more so than a marine a marine biologist or a marine person, did you have any big inspirations or people you wanted to be like or that you looked up to? Or was this all just kind of on your own accord, kind of found it yourself, your mom kind of thing? Um, I mean, I think as a little kid, it was the ocean was just my inspiration. And my, my parents um, are just so water focused. You know, my dad is um a surfer and my mom is also she just she loves snorkeling and being around the ocean um so I think just the fact that the ocean and water was just such a big part of my childhood was kind of the inspiration um I would say as I got older Rachel Carson she just always near and dear to my heart the way she talks about the ocean it's like oh, I, I, you're saying things that I feel, but way more eloquently. Um, yeah, so I, I would say just family being really supportive of me always wanting to be in the water. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It is, it's nice to have people that are around you that support you and help you pursue those dreams. So I'm mm-hmm. happy that you had that and that it led you here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been a really long winding road but uh, so far I'm I'm really happy about it (laughs) good that makes me happy you consider yourself a water woman so like what are kind of your favorite ways to spend a day in the water obviously aside from hanging out with seals because that's (laughs) gonna be your number one favorite thing of course oh yes um I would say it is a 
two-way tie between body surfing and like free diving slash snorkeling. Um, you know, I, I've, I've done the surfing thing. Um, sailing, I get so seasick, unfortunately. So that is never much fun. Um, oh no yeah <laughs> so yeah and scuba diving is just it, it can be really expensive and just all the logistics and so I just love you know with body surfing it's just you and a pair of fins and the waves and that's all you need with free diving it is just you and a pair of fins and an ecosystem and snorkeling yeah. you and a snorkel and a mask and you're good to go so I just I love that the kind of more minimalist um, I don't need all of the equipment. I just want to be in the water. Um, so yeah, I think I think body surfing and, and snorkeling. <laughs> I love that. Two very great options. There's nothing quite like free diving once you get not that you ever have to be good, but comfortable with it where you can stay down for a little bit longer. You really feel like you just kind of live in the ocean. And then you get to the end of your breath hold and you're like, I need out of this place right now. (laughs) Yep. And that's when I could really use the elephant seal hemoglobin. (laughs) (laughs) Right? How useful would that be? (laughs) Yeah. In fact, um, so uh, my partner works internationally and um, he was luckily stuck at home for three months. Um, And before (laughs) he left, we were just like, okay. We want to be safe with COVID and everything, but we have to get in the water because it's three months and that is just not okay. Um, And so we woke up at like, I think 4.30 in the morning, drove three hours to the coast. We were in the water for five hours, free diving, snorkeling, body surfing, surfing. We literally did it all. And then we drove three hours home. So it's just like that. I just have in my mind that was probably like the most perfect day in COVID world because it was just like, yeah, us us in the ocean just wanting to like maximize every single drop of of that. <laughs> I love that. That is awesome. Yeah. If people want to follow along with you and your water women journey and of course all the seals that you're going to be hanging out with, is there anywhere on social media that they can find you? Yeah, so again, I am mildly obsessed with Twitter, so <laughs> um, you can find me there, Carly R. Shudo. Um, and then um, I have my, my recent COVID project, uh, being stuck at home, has actually been watercoloring. So I am also, I've started, it's, I'm not a good watercolorist, just like, you know, wanted to preface this with that. <laughs> But it is a very soothing activity that I've also turned into like a science communication project where I accompany whatever um, animal I have painted uh, with a a fun fact about that animal. So um, with that, it's I'm at um, color underscore science underscore emotion, but emotion is spelled E M O. C-E-A-N. <laughs> so I love, I love a little punny, <laughs> punny <laughs> wordplay. Um, and then finally, um, I've been pretty active um, with my graduate group's blog, the Ethogram. So, I mean, anyone who has any interest in animals whatsoever um, should check out the Ethogram. Um, we post uh, like multiple articles every week, um, just stuff about um, what it's like to be in the field and 
uh, do research in all these different settings and we do creature features on different, you know, just diving into one animal specifically. Um, and then we've also um, are starting a new page called Young Explorers. So we're trying to get the kiddos involved. So we have um, some stuff on there coming out too. So yeah, that that is where you can find me on one of those three platforms. That is awesome. I will have all of this linked in the description of our podcast as well and in the links in our bios on all of our social medias. So that's going to be super easy for everyone to find. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today, Carly. It was so awesome having you on and I learned so much just in this past like 40 minutes. That is oh awesome. My gosh. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. It really, I don't know, it is such a pleasure to be considered a water woman. Um, you absolutely are. Yeah, to be, I don't know, to be among all of the amazing scientists and other episodes, I'm like, do I really stack up to that? So <laughs> I appreciate being involved and yeah, being, being with you today. <laughs> well, thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much.